Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today, it's just me, and I'm going to be talking about an unethical psychiatrist that they did a podcast about called The Shrink Next Door. It's a podcast by Wondery. It's narrated and written by Joe Nocera, and it was the number one podcast for three straight weeks on Apple Podcast Charts. So it's all about, it's, I don't know, it's, it's not actually that long. It's probably three or four hours long. It's eight episodes or something. It's about Dr. Isaac Hershkoff or Ike Hershkoff. He's a psychiatrist in New York, I believe, somewhere out there. Uh, you know, I'm in Seattle. Everything's just out there. Uh, Dr. Isaac Hershkoff, psychiatrist, uh, currently practicing and has been for the past 30 or 40 years or something. And the podcast is all about how he controlled his patients. And it, now it's all allegations. So I'm going to be repeatedly repeatedly using the word allegedly because uh, he hasn't been found, uh, you know, he hasn't had his hearing yet, which is actually in a, a next week-ish. And so we might have more information about that. But um, so, yeah, he allegedly committed several ethical violations. And people are asking me to talk about it because I often – Love to talk about other therapists that can't seem to follow simple ethical codes. And so I'm gladly talking about the Shrink, the Shrink Next Door podcast narrated by Jonah Sarah about Dr. Isaac Herskoff. I binged this podcast as soon as, as soon as all the episodes came out. Um, I was, I thought, ooh, this, this Wondery makes some really great podcasts. And I was like, man, this, this podcast is right up my alley. And yeah, it's very entertaining. I highly recommend it. So, you really have to listen to the podcast to get the full feeling of the story. I'm not going to real. I'm not going to be able to encapsulate the 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 way that this guy just comes across like a sleaze bag. You know, I'm going to be talking about the ethical violations, and I'm going to actually go through the American Psychiatric Association ethical codes and analyzing how or whether or not Doctor Hershkoff actually violated the ethical codes. I'm going to be doing that later, but. You know, and the podcast, because I actually think in the podcast, they didn't really do a good job of that, which makes sense to me because they're trying to conserve time and, and they're not clinicians, they're journalists. But I, I thought I would provide that, that look at it. But just uh, to briefly kind of go over the, the story here for those who haven't read or those who don't remember, the doctor, the psychiatrist just comes across like a complete sleaze bag. It, it's very similar to Donald Sterling, if you know the Clippers owner in, in L.A. Uh, if you want more information on the Donald Sterling uh, uh, affair and scandal, listen to the recent 30 for 30 podcast for more information on that. I, I binged that as well. The Donner, I think it's like five episodes, again, maybe three or four hours. Donald Sterling, L.A. Clippers owner, Total sleaze bag. If you don't remember him, he was the guy who uh, they his mistress recorded him talking about how he was really angry at her because she took pictures uh, like selfies with her and Magic Johnson and other African American basketball players, and he was like, you know, sure you can you can socialize with them, but don't take pictures with them, you know, because essentially Don Sterling this owner of a basketball team treated his African-American basketball players like they were slaves. I mean, it was, it was gross. You just have to listen to the whole thing. But anyway, the uh, uh, Dr. Herskoff is, is in that vein, not in a racist vein per se, but in that vein of just, the, and they both loved to be the center of attention. 
And although that's not a very strange thing to want in the population, you know, one or two to three percent of people are really weird about that. But they both use their power, whether it was Donald Sterling and his money or Dr. Hirschkoff and his power as a psychiatrist, they both they both use their power to get people to 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 fake like they liked them. So he could get people to believe that he was somebody, that he was a very important person. And it's when you listen to the, the both these podcasts, you just get this real clear picture of that sort of narcissism. Um, and they both exploited other people, and they both got away with it for so long. It's just crazy to hear these stories, you know, about, uh, you know, Bill Cosby and, and Harvey Weinstein and these people and just decades of, of abuse and horrible behavior and all the victims. Uh, so anyway, Dr. Hirschkoff, uh, many years, 30 plus years or something of this kind of behavior. Um, and also they both, Donald Sterling and Dr. Hirschkoff, both seem to be massively Im- immature and very socially awkward, which is this other element to it of they they probably never really felt quite right around other people but desperately wanted to be seen as a cool person and again use their power to get that and dr hershkoff also seemed to have no emotional control because he was he must have known he was putting himself at risk all those years Dr. Hershkoff seemingly had no regard for the rules or the, or the standard of practice. He was way outside the norm. In my opinion, if the allegations are correct, he completely broke uh, you know, many critical and obvious ethical codes for decades. He managed to pilfer millions of dollars in houses and other stuff, allegedly, from his patients. Meanwhile, the rest of us clinicians are obsessing about whether or not to accept a $5 Starbucks card from our clients. And this guy's pilfering millions of dollars and getting his own kids to be on wills. I'll get into it. And it just makes me sick. You know, this is a total douchebag. And it makes us all look bad. All makes, makes us all look, look bad. If these allegations are accurate, his license needs to be taken away immediately. And also, there's a scandal involving the New York Department of Health, which I'll get into in a little bit. Uh, basically, they didn't do anything until this podcast came out. Uh, spo- spoiler alert on this own podcast. And so, you know, I wish there was a a jail not only for the ethics board for not doing anything about it for so long, but also for Dr. Hirschkoff. I wish there was like a special therapist jail where we could lock people like this up because um, just taking away their license doesn't seem like it's enough because he got away with it for so long utilizing his license and harming people along the way. Uh, So the story begins with Marty Markowitz, who was a patient of... Dr. Hirschkoff, and he's the lead figure in the podcast. But there are other patients who have stepped forward and also provided accounts of how this psychiatrist abused his power with them. So, uh, but my main uh, look here in the podcast, uh, uh, the Shrink Next Door podcast, is mainly about Markowitz, Marty. So, Marty was in therapy with the psychiatrist for almost 30 years. He, from the beginning, he needed someone to help him to be more assertive. And they are clear to point out in the podcast that Dr. Hershkoff really actually helped him to do that, that the psychiatrist is actually pretty good at his job. He, uh, a lot of the patients who came forward and said that he was unethical were also, you know, uh, wanting to say, look, he helped me. He, he was pretty good at his job. Um, 
But then he allegedly, the, the psychiatrist started to slowly manipulate people over many years to get Marty and other patients to give the psychiatrist, to give himself things. You know, I, I just can't imagine this kind of behavior. I just can't imagine thinking about my own clients as people whom I am going to exploit for my own needs, that I'm going to somehow get them to give me their house or put me on their will or give me their money or give me their business. It's just absurd. Oh, by the way, I should introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Conda. I'm a therapist and a professor and hopefully uh, ethical at that. So the allegations are that um, are the following. So one, one of the main allegations is that Marty, the patient, originally he so he, he was a business owner. He had uh, he was you know this millions of dollars sort of coming in and out of his business, and he was a pretty rich guy. And he had a sensible home in the Hamptons. Now I, again, I'm from Seattle. I don't underst- I don't understand what the Hamptons are. I I get this impression that the Hamptons are this fancy place. Um, but anyway, it's a neighborhood near New York or in New York or something. Anyway, but Marty originally just owned this this sensible home, regular home in the Hamptons. And But the Dr. Hirschkoff, his, own, his psychiatrist, okay, remember that, Marty's psychiatrist, Dr. Hirschkoff, used his influence to get Marty, allegedly, to buy the fancy property next door to his sensible home in the Hamptons. This, this very fancy home next door had a large pool with a slide, a full-size basketball court, a tennis court, a hot tub, modern sculpture, and multiple koi ponds. So, so, and and it's, a, it's like a party house, you know, if you got to see pictures of it online, but it's like a house that you would have lots of pool parties at and or, a, I don't know, a rap video or something. And the psychiatrist is using his influence over his patient to get his patient to buy a house that he doesn't need. You know, Marty Markowitz was this, you know, quiet, shy, you know, unassuming guy. What, what does he need with this, you know, multi-million dollar home? I don't know how much the house costs, but it's, it's very expensive, right? And, and so uh, now the reason why the psychiatrist wanted him to buy this was because the psychiatrist wanted this house for himself. So just think about that one. <laughs> the psychiatrist allegedly wanted this fancy house for himself. So he gets his rich uh, he gets his rich client who originally came to him because he needed to be assertive. So just think about that, that uh, the patient comes to him and says, I have a problem with, with being assertive, with asserting my own needs, with drawing boundaries with other people. The psychiatrist helps him to draw boundaries with other people, but then proceeds to utilize the patient's own weakness against him to get the patient to buy a house he doesn't need because the psychiatrist wants the house for himself. So then slowly over time, again, this is years, months going by, just a, 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 a psychopathic plan that the psychiatrist has, allegedly, uh, to get into that house. So it wasn't just like, you know, session one, he said, oh, you're rich, buy this house. You know, it's very slow, methodical, premeditated. Uh, the psychiatrist gets to the buy, he buys the house. Uh, the psychiatrist 
Uh, now, I should say from the top that the psychiatrist has you know, given official statements saying that um, he didn't do any of these things, um, and it's possible that there's another side of the story, but there's so many so many arrows pointing in the direction. It's sort of like, yeah, I guess all of Bill Cosby's victims could be lying. I guess that's possible, but, you know, not likely. So uh, so anyway, uh, the psychiatrist uh, starts to use this fancy property for himself. Not only does he use the property, but he base, he moves in to the house uh, as his own Hamptons fancy house. He acts like the house is his, Marty, the owner of the house, lives basically as the property's gardener in an outbuilding. And uh, basically, the psychiatrist makes his patient act as if it's not his house. You know, it's like, okay, you bought the house, but now act like it's not your house and make sure when you invite. And, and then he proceeded to have all these parties, which I'll get into in a second. But he completely redecorated the house. Um, he eliminated all traces of Marty living there. He put all of his pictures all over, all over the place. Um, the psychiatrist loved, and this is another just super sleazebag thing that he would do, he would sort of force himself on celebrities or anyone important and make sure that he got a picture with them. You know, this is before selfies, so you'd have to get someone to take a picture, and often it was actually Marty, his patient. He would, you know, so one time one of his fancy pool parties Gwyneth Paltrow was there Brooke Shields OJ Simpson and and other sort of events that that uh, the Hirschkoff would the psychiatrist would go to and he would get Marty or other people to make sure that he had a picture with them even though he might have just met them for two seconds he was always like I need a picture with you and so he would get this picture and then he'd frame it and put it on his wall and it may you know it's like look I know Gwyneth me and Gwyneth Paltrow are best buddies and meanwhile he bumped into her at a fundraiser for three seconds the psychiatrist allegedly made Marty do all sorts of jobs like gardening organizing parties bookkeeping uh, the psychiatrist would tell Marty to type up his manuscripts for 12 books that he wrote so just imagine that one for a second. Let's imagine me as a therapist who is working with a client who has trouble with being assertive and boundaries. And I make him uh, uh, you know, type up my manuscripts for 12 of my books without any kind of payment. But even if I did pay the patient, this is a clear violation of ethical codes. Now, for some of you out there who are not clinicians, you might be like, well, What's the big deal? You know, if 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 Marty, the patient, didn't want to do it, he could have just said, I don't want to do it. So why did he do it in the first place? Well, here's the thing. When you're – and to therapists, we know this, uh, and psychiatrists are no different. When we have a patient, especially in talk therapy as Marty was with Dr. Hirschkoff, that is a very special relationship, and there are very specific ethical guidelines – for example, when it comes to dual relationships, meaning that you you want to be extremely cautious about creating other kinds of relationships with your patients because it could interfere with the treatment. It could harm the client. Uh, for example, let's just go with the this, this situation. When the psychiatrist asked his patient to type up his book, the patient is sort of dependent on a psychiatrist in some ways. You know, the patient needs the psychiatrist. The, the patient might be like, 
there's really no one else around that can help me the way this guy can. And I don't want to start over with someone else. So I'm sort of locked in with this person. I don't want to, I don't want to lose this person. And I really respect this person. I like this psychiatrist. I, I want his help. I need his help. And I, I can't really say no to him because if I say no to him, maybe he'll be upset at me and he'll fire me as, as his patient and then I'll be flapping in the wind. Maybe I'll never find another psychiatrist as good as this one. I don't know. So when you put someone in a position where they, it's hard for them to say no, you have potential, you're, you're exploiting your client, essentially. The other thing is, is let's say the patient learns things about you that are very intimate, you know, like they, they learn sort of background information, like my psychiatrist is a sleazebag who likes to take pictures with Gwyneth Paltrow and act like he knows her when he doesn't. So knowing that about your psychiatrist is going to harm your idea of your psychiatrist and thus it'll harm the treatment because you lose respect for your psychiatrist and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, I could talk for a long time about that, but I hope you get the picture that when us clinicians are working with clients, uh, we have to be very cautious about creating these other relationships like uh, moving into their house, that kind of thing. Because again, it could harm treatment, which is uh, the do no harm mandate on all medical and psychological professionals. So the um, uh, uh, Dr. Hirschkoff did this a lot with Marty, created a lot of other relationships. Now, sometimes we can create other relationships and as long as we're very cautious and we're we're not doing it for our own gain and we inform the, the client about it and give them the choice and we consult with other people and we get supervision and all this, you know, it's not like a, we can't have other kinds of relationships, but we definitely want to avoid relationships that are avoidable. Like there were other people who could have typed up his manuscript, right? <laughs> Presumably there are professionals that he could have hired or I don't know, just could have asked anyone else. Why did he have to ask Marty? Why? Because the psychiatrist allegedly knew that Marty Markowitz would not say no and that Marty would do whatever he said. And, you know, the psychiatrist is like, I need someone to type up this. You know, I need someone to give me a fancy house in the Hamptons. You know, it, it might as well be this patient because I know that he has a hard time with boundaries and a hard time with being assertive. And I know that he really depends on me as a psychiatrist. It's just really sick to think about, right? So, uh, so yeah. So Dr. Hershkoff did this for many, many years. Um, now let's get into his parties. This is a pretty big part of the podcast. Uh, Dr. Hershkoff, the psychiatrist, was famous for these elaborate parties he had at his fancy Hamptons house. He would have like 100 to 200 people bust in, uh, you know, important people, famous people. It was a very, you know, it was a big deal kind of a party for, for important people, I guess. And he made Marty, his patient, the owner of the house, deal with all the fancy invitations Acting as though acting as though this wasn't his house, and this was going on for years and years. Everyone assumed that Marty was the hired help, not the owner of the house, and definitely not a patient of Doctor Hershkoff's. And at these parties, the psychiatrist invited his own patients. He, he didn't. He wasn't just exploiting Marty for this purpose of this house and the and the invitations and blah blah blah. But he also invited many of his patients to these parties. 
which is a massive dual relationship issue that could have easily been avoided by, let's just say it, don't invite your own patients to parties. Now, this isn't a massive violation. You're not going to go to my therapist prison for this sort of thing. I would definitely advise against it. And I would, and if I knew anyone who did this sort of thing, I would definitely think they were a hack therapist. But uh, it's, it's, you know, in the grand scheme of all the other things that he was doing, it's just another example. At these parties, some of his patients, you know, because there were a lot of women that people, attractive women patients that he would invite, and they would come to the pool party and they would wear a bikini. And there's pictures of Dr. Hirschkoff touching his patients while they're in bathing suits in the pool, allegedly. He introduced his patients to his friends. He introduced patients to each other. This is a big no-no. Uh, there, I, I will be just to give you an idea, uh, if you're not a clinician, about how rigid these rules are, again, to protect the patient, to protect the client. I will have, say, two coworkers coming to me, and they both know that the other coworker is you know, coming to me as the therapist and they'll say, oh, you know, I ran into uh, Jane and she said she had a session with you yesterday that went really well. And, you know, so that's really great. I, in that in situation that because I cannot break people's confidentiality, I will say to my client, I'm sorry, I can't acknowledge the person you're, I can't, I can't respond to what you just said because I have to protect people's pers- uh, confidentiality. So I can't even acknowledge that I'm seeing people even when someone knows that I'm seeing them. So let's give another situation. Let's say I'm seeing a 16-year-old uh, girl and the parents call me up and they say, so I want to talk you, talk with you about Jennifer's therapy. I have to say, I can't, without a written consent, I can't acknowledge that I even know who you're talking about. It's very rigid, very important for the client's treatment. If clients are going to f- trust me with telling me whatever they're going to tell me, they have to know that I'm not going to just throw away their confidentiality. So, so that's how rigid it is. But this psychiatrist was inviting his patients to his own party, introducing them to his friends, to other patients, revealing them as patients, allegedly. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, way outside the standard of care. There's many accounts of him being a massive sleazebag, uh, name-dropping famous people all the time, uh, obsessive about getting pictures with famous people and framing them, as I was talking about. Uh, there's these accounts of him showing up to parties really late on purpose so he can make a big splash. I mean, again, it's hard to know the accuracy of these stories, but uh, again, when you look at all the stories in this podcast together, it points towards a particular sort of personality. Marty said that the psychiatrist isolated him from his family. So this is when we start to get into like, whoa, premeditation, Basically, grooming, if you understand what grooming is, when a sexual predator wants to abuse a child or someone else, they will groom. They will target someone. They isolate them. They figure out a way to get access. And the psychiatrist seemingly 
followed this grooming process with Marty and other people. There's actually two main patients that they talk about, that they talk with on the podcast, both of whom the psychiatrist purposefully isolated the patients from their family because they knew, because the psychiatrist knew probably that if he didn't isolate the patients, the patient's families would say like, wait, you're putting your psychiatrist in your will? Wait, you're giving your psychiatrist millions of dollars? Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, and the psychiatrist do that. So the psychiatrist did things to, and basically used therapy. Like, you know, you need to assert yourself with your sister. You need to assert yourself with your parents. Your mom is an evil person. You have to cut her off, that kind of thing. And it could feel like therapy, even though I've never been that way with my clients. I have, I've had clients who have had abusive parents, and I've never said, cut yourself off from your parents. Now, if someone wants to cut themselves off from their parents, then I am 100% supportive of that. But I would never know the right answer to that question. Families are complicated. Relationships are complicated. Recovery from abuse and uh, history and grief is complicated. So uh, I, would never, uh, I would never suggest one way or the other on that because I don't know the answer to those questions. I, I don't know those answers to my own life. So how am I supposed to know about it in other people's lives? Anyway, so Marty said that the psychiatrist isolated him from this family. These are some quotes from him in the podcast. He got my sister and her children and all of my blood relatives and close friends out of my life. He got my sister and her children and all of my blood relatives and close friends out of my life. Wow. Another quote. If my sister contacted me, he instructed me to bring all those things into him we would listen to it together and he would interpret it. So he's not only uh, getting all these people out of his life, but he would say, okay, if, if your sister calls you and leaves a message, bring that into me and I'll interpret it. Presumably, seemingly to manipulate Marty to see it as a negative thing and to cut him off from his support system. He wanted to control Marty. This is, like all, you know, all good cult leaders do this. All effective cult leaders know that along the way, a crucial step is you have to separate people from their families. You have to separate them from the voice of reason. Otherwise, you risk losing control of these people who are susceptible to being controlled. You know, it's like you might even know people like this, or you might even be someone like this. You're around a very charismatic person and you're just like, whoa, I really believe this person. And then you leave that person, you go to an, a, the, an opposite perspective and that person's talking and you're like, whoa, I believe this person now. You know, there's just some people based on their defense mechanisms developed in response to difficulties growing up that make them extremely susceptible to other people's influence. And Marty admittedly, uh, even he had talked about this in the podcast, was one of those people. And the doctor knew that, obviously, because he, he's a expert in, you know, treating people and personality, and uh, proceeded to uh, help these patients to assert themselves, but then took it another 
you know, it was for the first bit, it was probably helping Marty to draw boundaries and assert his needs and whatnot. But then that's when he gets his hooks in and he's like, okay, now we're going to take this to the next level. Now you're going to cut these people off. Now you're going to, now you're going to do all these other things that I want you to do. And he, you know, uh, hid all of this stuff as if it was helpful to the patients when it was just exploiting them. Marty said that his psychiatrist used therapy to manipulate him to hand over control of his business and his money. Here's some quotes from Marty. A constant mantra from him was he'd say, you can't handle the truth. You're passive aggressive and you can't handle confrontation. You're going to screw up the business and lose customers. So this is the psychiatrist telling his patient, you're, you're passive aggressive. You can't handle confrontation. You're going to screw up business. Why don't you give me your business and I will take care of it for you? That's just incredible. Another quote here. There was nobody, certainly in my family, that could slap me across the face and say, what are you doing? Are you out of your mind? So there's Marty saying, there was nobody, in, in, because he had cut me off from my family, there was no one around that could slap me across the face and say, do not hand over your business, or the because this was a, a family business that had been passed down through the generations. Do not give the family business to your psychiatrist. <laughs> You know, what are you doing? But because the psychiatrist had cut him off from his family, he couldn't do that. He made Marty fire people from his business. He managed to get millions of dollars out of Marty, allegedly. It, now, it wasn't directly to the psychiatrist, but the psychiatrist set up this, um, or the psychiatrist had Marty set up this this charity or some other kind of organization. It was basically a it's seemingly allegedly a front for the psychiatrist to get the money directly and then marty would give money to this organization but the psychiatrist was the main uh, controller of this organization and would actually withdraw money for himself that kind of thing he bullied marty so as the relationship starts to progress so one my impression was that with marty Again, this was almost 30 years of time. In the beginning, the psychiatrist was actually helping him to be uh, you know, assertive and helping his self-esteem, that kind of thing. Then it entered this other phase where the psychiatrist was now uh, trying to infiltrate Marty's life and try to get Marty to hand over his business and his money and his house and making him subservient. And, and that was very effective, getting him you know, separated from his family. Then there was this third phase where uh, the psychiatrist seemed to be uh, letting his guard down or something, or or maybe Marty was starting to wake up because there started to be conflict between Marty and the psychiatrist. Marty started saying, like, nah, I don't know if I want to do that. And the psychiatrist stopped paying as much attention to Marty, and over time, they started to fight. And... When that happened, the psychi- and the psychiatrist was losing control of Marty, it seemed as though a psychiatrist decided, well, I'm just going to bully Marty into doing what I want. And for a while, Marty would do it. Uh, now, again, it's important to remember that his patients, many of them thought he was very helpful. Uh, you know, many would think uh, that they would... They, if If you're listening to this story or listening to the podcast... 
you might be like, well, I would never see a psychiatrist like this. I, you know, I, I would see it a mile away and I'd just be like, screw you. Well, one, in the beginning, the, the psychiatrist was very helpful. Apparently, he's very charismatic. He has a sharp mind for understanding personality and helping people navigate that. Uh, and uh, he used that against them eventually. But in the beginning, he was very helpful. And uh, it's and I know a lot of you out there are actively looking or have given up looking to for a therapist that you really click with. You know, you've tried looking for a therapist. It didn't really work out. Um, or you had a therapist that you clicked with and the therapist moved out of the area or retired. Or you tried to replace that person. It never really worked out. It's hard to find someone you really cl- click with. Well, his these patients re- really clicked with him. And so it, it's not as easy as just saying like, well, I, I don't like what my psychiatrist is doing. And so I'm going to move to another psychiatrist. It's it's actually something that's a bit of a problem in our in our industry. It's sort of like a these like little mini monopolies exist in our in our field. Not in every community, but it's kind of like that. Where you know, if you're at a McDonald's and you see a fly in your French fries, you'll you'll stand up and go like, "Hey, something's wrong with my French fries." And if the management doesn't rectify the situation adequately, you'll just go to Burger King next door or a different McDonald's across town owned, owned by someone else. A lot of businesses are like that, you know, coffee shops, um, grocery stores, dry cleaners. Um, some businesses aren't like that, like Amazon is buying up a lot of things. But anyway, my point is, is that some businesses, the, the consumer has a lot of control. You also know who to talk to. You can just stand up and yell or you can tweet about it or something. You know, you, you have or a bad Yelp review, for example. There's things that you know as a consumer that you can do f- to get justice. I mean, you might not necessarily get justice, but you just have a general sense of what you can do. When you're a patient and or a client of a mental health professional, one, there's so much stigma around getting t- treatment, getting help from a therapist that a lot of clients – they don't want to even acknowledge to anyone, especially publicly on Twitter, that they're even in therapy. So they're not going to necessarily post it online. They don't necessarily know where to go to complain, even though it's in our disclosure statements. You know, every or it should be in every clinician's disclosure statement. It should say something like, "You can go to the Department of Health and complain about this person." A lot of people forget that. It's even in there, and they're just like, well, who do I even talk to if, if I do have a problem with, with my therapist? And as we'll find out later, the Department of Health doesn't always respond. In fact, a lot of times they don't, <laughs> in my experience, So, or at least they don't in the way that people want. Anyway, so as we start to get into this other phase of therapy or relationship between Marty Markowitz and Dr. Hershkoff, now we're up to about 2010, so about nine years ago. And Marty slowly realizes that the psychiatrist really wasn't on his side, and he started to get really hurt by how much the psychiatrist was bullying him. And Marty ends the relationship with his psychiatrist. He just ends it, 2010. Years later, six years later, 2016, Marty finally realizes, wait, I think, that, I think my psychiatrist really kind of screwed me up. 
I, I thought he was helping me, but looking back, I think he really messed me up. Uh, he he violated my trust. He took he took away my money. He manipulated me. It was like being in an abusive relationship. So Marty, after all these years, uh, comes forward and files a complaint uh, with the New York Department of Health. And this is exactly what you're supposed to do. And Marty said that the psychiatrist had acted unethically, which I agree with, and that he had harmed him with his bad boundaries, which I agree with. And Marty alleged that the psychiatrist had taken control of almost every aspect of his life where he lived, what he spent his money on, his entire business, who we talked to. You know, this is this is an abusive relationship. Marty Markowitz had even written a will giving his multi-million dollar estate to a foundation he had started with the psychiatrist. That's what I was talking about earlier. So, uh, and the psychiatrist would have controlled that money after Marty had died. If Marty died, then the psychiatrist was going to control all that money himself. The psychiatrist became a joint owner of Marty's Swiss bank account and used his uh, used Marty's house free of charge and made Marty perform hundreds of hours of secretarial services. The document that he sent to the New York Department of Health also includes allegations of inappropriate physical touching of different patients of the psychiatrist because, you know, Marty saw his psychiatrist touching other patients at these parties, right? Okay, so pretty, you know, pretty uh, um, convincing allegations made to the New York Department of Health. I mean, at the very least, the New York Department of Health should have looked into it, right? They should be like, well, you know, sometimes... Some patients, they complain when there really isn't any grounds. But, wow, you know, this this one patient is saying that this psychiatrist took over every aspect of his life, that he made him write him into the will, that he took away his house, that he got into his bank account, and he used his house for free and made him do hundreds of hours of secretarial services. That sounds crazy. That he's touching other patients, that... This patient knew about other patients. I mean, there's so many things to say, hmm, this needs to be looked at. Uh, But guess what the New York Department of Health did? Nothing. For years, they did nothing. Again, let's review the allegations. A patient has said that a licensed psychiatrist in their state has done the following things. In the best of language, he influenced a patient to do a lot of odd things. In the worst of language, he abusively manipulated his patient to do a lot of odd things. But we'll say influenced. He influenced him to buy a house. He influenced him to let him move into the house for decades. He influenced the patient to act as if the house isn't the patient's house. He influenced the patient to act as if he was the gardener of the house. He influenced the patient to live in a different building other than his house. He influenced the patient to give him and his family a lot of money, including putting him in the patient's will. He influenced the patient to reject his family members and friends. He influenced the patient to hand over his multi-million dollar business. He invited his patients to his house parties. He touched his patients while they were in bikinis. 
and he introduced his current patients to his friends and to his other current patients. And the New York State Department of Health did nothing. And I've seen this before, my friends. I've never called you my friends before, but I'm doing that right now. I've seen this before, my friends. I have seen departments of health, state departments of health, do nothing. Now, I don't know why they do nothing. Uh, I suspect they are overworked, one, underpaid, two. Uh, I also think that there's not a huge incentive for them to actually take things seriously because it would require more work for them, right? You know, if they took every allegation seriously, they would have to work 80 hours a week, right? Uh, But they don't have time for that. I also think that sometimes Department of Health has like connections with people that they don't want to burn those bridges, you know, because they might actually have some kind of connections that with the elite because, you know, the psychiatrist is in this elite class and the patient is not, um, at least in in certain circles, I'm guessing. So maybe that was a factor. Again, I don't know. Um, but my here's my impression of people who work for these departments. They wake up in the morning and they go to their government job and, you know, I don't know how much they love their job, honestly, because I've interacted with people in my state in this capacity. And of course, they're not all like this, but many of them are where I'll, you know, I'll reach out to them with a question or some kind of concern and they won't even, they won't even write me back or I'll hound them for months. Just, just ask a simple question. I'll just be like, so I just have this simple question about procedure and maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree, but they don't even reply with like, no, you need to be talking to so-and-so. This is our government, my tax dollars paying for these people. These are people that are, you know, issuing my license to practice in my state. And yet I can't get a response from them. And again, I'm not emailing the president of the United States. I'm emailing my local government's licensing body. You know, they have all the control. They just don't have to respond. And so... Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like when you go to the DMV and you get that real cranky person. It's it's like, what are you going to do? There's no there's no DMV next door that you can go to and say, screw you guys, I'm going next door. My cat wants to weigh in on this. Uh, you know, all of us can't go to another Department of Health. We have that one Department of Health, and that's you know, it just kind of breeds that sort of. I don't know, incompetence or something. Now, again, there could be more to this story than I realize. Obviously, I'm just listening to a podcast and reading what's on the internet, but it sure smells bad. It sure smells like a situation where you had a a rotten rotten psychiatrist and then a rotten department of health that did nothing to help the people that they're supposed to help to do exactly what the taxpayers pay them to do. They did nothing. So, and for years and Marty would call them and be like, so I sent you, you know, the allegation. It sounded like Marty even got a lawyer to type up the thing to make it official. And Marty would call. So what's happening with, you know, Dr. Hershkoff is still practicing what's going on here. And they, Oh, it's under investigation. Six months later, call back. Oh, just wondering what's going on. Oh, it's under investigation. 
Six months later, call back. Oh, you know, it's been a long time. What have what are you investigating? You know, I'm the harmed party here. Shouldn't you be telling me what the hell is happening right now? Oh, we're still investigating. Now, who wants to take a bet that they weren't investigating crap? So then we get to 2018, two years later, and then I think this is about when the podcast started. Uh, the podcast producers and Joan O'Sara, they start to investigate, and they, they reach out to um, Marty Markowitz. They, they reach out to Dr. Hirschkoff. And actually, you got to listen to the podcast, The Shriek Next Door. The uh, Marty or um, the, Dr. Hirschkoff interacts a lot with Joan O'Sara, um, because Jonas Sarah was a neighbor, actually. That's how we met him. Anyway, it's a long story. But um, So the Shriek, the Wondery starts to work on this podcast, and then the podcast comes out this year, 2019, I think in the summer, just a couple of months ago. Again, it becomes the number one podcast on Apple almost immediately for three weeks straight. That's a big deal. There's, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of podcasts, a lot of good ones out there. The Shrink Next Door becomes number one. Soon after, guess what happens? Super popular podcast. Uh, all this discussion about this massively uh, unethical psychiatrist laying out all the details, interviewing all these people. And at the end of the podcast, they talk about how Marty made this complaint years ago and kept following up and nothing happened. And guess what happened? Guess what happened? Marty immediately starts receiving several phone calls from the New York Department of Health. I mean, what? Do you have no shame? This is a massive scandal. The Department of Health did nothing for years, seemingly. (laughs) Uh, I have no doubt they did nothing until the podcast came out. Now, again, maybe I don't have all the details. Maybe we'll learn more. Maybe the New York Department of Health will have an excuse, like it fell under the desk and we couldn't find it. Or we had 10,000 other cases that were even more important than Marty's. And then coincidentally, when we finally had more time, it was at the peak of popularity of a podcast that was making us look like shit. Maybe you will find that out, but boy, does does it smell rotten. So um, the podcast, again, they interview other patients who come forward. They start making allegations to the New York Department of Health. Department of Health finally, just you know, weeks ago, finally posts a number of allegations. And by the way, the Department of, just so you understand how the landscape works, the Department of Health these these charges they're not criminal. They're ethical. They're they're. Um, standard of practice issues. And so mostly it's about his license to practice. So there's going to be, there's a hearing set for September 24, 2019, which is just next week. Dr. Hirschkoff will be able to contest these allegations, but I can't imagine this going very well for him, uh, given all the investigations by the podcast and all the publicity. I can't imagine that, that the New York Department of Health wants even more bad press by letting the psychiatrist off the hook. But we'll see. Uh, People have looked into it and they found that since the podcast came out, the psychiatrist is no longer listed on the New York University's medical school's website. So he claims that he resigned voluntarily from the New York University Medical School. 
He has resigned from his board position on. So get, get this. For many years, he has been on the board on the fellowship at Auschwitz for the study of professional ethics. So forget that it's a weird name, but basically understand that this is an organization that specializes in general ethics, not just ethics and psychiatry, but general ethics. Think about the irony in that. This guy's on the board of an organization that specializes and advocates for ethics. So just to make it clear, and they didn't make this clear in the podcast at all, the, the possible consequences to the common consequences that a Department of Health will dole out to uh, uh, clinicians who they deem to have been acting outside the standard of practice is to suspend their license – to, uh, which is just, you know, suspend it for a year, revoke their license, take it away uh, for good, to give them fines, which aren't usually that much, to require training, to require supervision, and to require not working with particular ty- kinds of clients. So what I suspect will happen, given all the publicity, is that the Department of Health, Health will revoke his license. And they will impose some fines, but it won't be that much. Now, uh, which I think will be some justice, but again, we're talking 30 years uh, of abuses by this guy to multiple patients. Uh, Again, I just wish there was a prison for therapists like this. But there's a possibility that he'll just get a slap on the wrist. I've seen this before. I've seen therapists. I was a a consultant on a – case uh, not too long ago in which the therapist essentially had sex with his client. Um, Well, I shouldn't say that. The therapist was uh, in session having sexual contact, fondling, not genital, but caressing and blah, blah, blah. Very romantic cuddling. Let's just call it romantic cuddling over multiple sessions. And that uh, and the patient came forward, made a complaint, and that uh, therapist just had a suspended that, – that th- so what happened to that therapist? I thought the therapist was going to lose their license for sure. I mean the therapist had no documentation that justified it, had no training, had not consulted, uh, admitted to all the allegations. And I was like, whoa, this is slam dunk. Just revoke his license. I mean that's what the Department of Health is for, right? You're supposed to like uh, police these kinds of things. And what happened in this case was they suspended his license for a little bit of time. And so he, so saying, and they said in order for, if he could start practicing again, uh, I think he might have had some fines. I'm not sure, but all he had to do, he had to go to some training, I believe, and he had to be supervised for a time. Uh, supervision could be very effective, meaning that, you know, a supervisor like makes sure that you follow, follow the ethical guidelines. They, they observe your work with your patients, that kind of thing. But you can also get a supervisor that's super relaxed and just be like, yeah, you know, let me know how things are going and I'll take your word for it. And, you know, usually it's that supervision is because it's hard to observe people working because you have to be in the office with them, which a lot of patients don't want you to be right. So, um, so it's possible that the psychiatrist, Dr. Hershkoff will get this minor slap on the wrist like, again, suspended license until he gets some training, maybe supervised practice for a couple years. Um, 
And, you know, when I think about this in terms of actual justice, it's not a terrible outcome um, because in all likelihood, Dr. Hirschkoff's days of manipulating clients are over. You know, he'll probably avoid this sort of behavior in the future if he is allowed to practice. Um, And, you know, he was reportedly an effective helper. So if he just kept within the lane of the standard of practice, he might actually do some good in the world. But it, it, would, it would be good to have a harsh punishment, in my opinion, to deter others from following in his footsteps. You know, this is rare. I just want to, if you're not a clinician out there, this is rare. This doctor is a rare cookie. This almost never happens. Like I said, most of us clinicians uh, will, will, you know, adamantly refuse a $5 Starbucks card at Christmas time. You know, your patient gives you a card and there's a Starbucks card. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I can't accept this. <laughs> like, you know, most most therapists are extremely rigid about uh, these kinds of boundary violations or crossings. Uh, would never invite their clients to a party, would never manipulate their clients to buy a house and then move into that house. You know, but it happens. These things do happen. You know, like I said, I've been a consultant on case like cases like this before. And there's a lot of cases like this each year in the United States and around the world. And it would be good if a Department of Health came forward and said, look, if you're going to cross the line that far for that, those many years, you're done. We have enough psychiatrists in the Northeast. We don't need you. And we need to send a strong message to all you other yahoos out there that are thinking about doing stuff like this that we will follow through <laughs> if you make a podcast about it. <laughs> Now, there are similar cases to this that I want to get into. Gloria Vanderbilt, for example, uh, for, for instance, she was a, you know, a socialite rich lady um, from the mid-20th century. She actually just died recently, a couple months ago, at the age of 95, lived a good long life. Uh, earlier in her life, she had a psychiatrist, and it was a very similar situation to Marty at, in that her psychiatrist exploited her because she was very rich. And... Uh, long story short, she sued the psychiatrist and won $1.5 million. Uh, so there's the Gloria Vanderbilt case, which is similar to the to the Marty Markowitz case with uh, Dr. Hershkoff. But the, the story that this really reminded me of, which I'm sure it's reminding some of you of, is Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. So Brian Wilson was the main songwriter of the Beach Boys, a, a genius and uh, Paul McCartney's muse in some ways. Um, in the 19... So it, this is a case in the 1980s. But uh, And if you really want to learn about this story, watch Love and Mercy uh, with um, John Cusack and... Uh, uh, what's that kid's name? <laughs> From There Will Be Blood. Anyway, uh, 2015 movie, Love and Mercy. I really liked the movie. Uh, me and Berto liked it. So... Basically, Brian Wilson, he started to suffer from severe mental illness starting in the 60s. And his life really took a downturn. He was depressed. He was, I think, delusional. I think he had schizoaffective disorder. And he was holed up in his, in his house in the dark and, you know, really suffering. Gained a ton of weight, wasn't doing any music anymore. And then in the 80s, he hires this therapist named Eugene Landy. 
uh, in the movie Love and Mercy, he's played by um, um, oh God, Paul. So anyway, the guy who played uh, uh, Samuel Adams. Anyway, um, or President Adams. Samuel Adams, not Samuel Adams. Anyway, God, pull me out of this dive here. Okay, so Eugene Landy was Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, his therapist in the 80s. And he manipulated Brian Wilson in a similar way to the way Dr. Hirschkoff allegedly manipulated Marty. So Brian Wilson's father was abusive. So the Beach Boys guy, Brian Wilson, his father was very abusive. And Brian Wilson's defense mechanism to this involved being very influenceable, very susceptible to manipulation from other people. And, you know, I suspect that Marty Markowitz had a very similar past to Brian Wilson. And this makes me so angry, you know, that a therapist, Eugene Landy and Dr. Hershkoff, they would both use their patients' issues against them. You know, both of these clinicians absolutely understood that their patients had issues with past abuse, with, with issues of assertiveness. And they just decided or unconscious, I don't know what, what the you know, pathway is, but they utilized that uh, issue, that weakness in their patient that they learned, the patient came to them for help to manipulate them. Eugene Landy manipulated Brian Wilson to make Eugene Landy his business manager. Uh, Landy manipulated Brian Wilson to make Landy a co-songwriter. So apparently, uh, uh, Eugene Landy, this therapist, fancied himself a songwriter in the 80s. And, and he, whenever Brian Wilson wrote a song, Eugene Landy made Wilson uh, you know, make him the co-writer. So these songs would be written by Brian Wilson and Eugene Landy. So just imagine, again, just step out of the this madness for a second. Let's imagine I had a you know a famous musician patient, and I manipulated my patient to and because I'm a musician, uh, and I manipulated this patient to make me a co-songwriter to one of their songs so that I could make millions of dollars from royalties. Imagine that. Just imagine that for a second. I mean, my God. Um, Eugene Landy co-produced Wilson's debut solo album in 1988. Um, Again, probably not because he's a good producer, but because he manipulated Brian Wilson. Um, He also uh, uh, was a co-producer on an unreleased follow-up album called Sweet Insanity in 1991. (laughs) So think about the irony of that that, uh, album name. Sweet Insanity by Brian Wilson. It wasn't released. He also ghost-wrote portions of Brian Wilson's memoir from 1991. Uh, Landy put him on a bunch of drugs that he probably didn't need. He essentially prescribed him drugs, even though he can't prescribe drugs. So he's like me. Eugene Landy's like me. He's not a medical professional. But he manipulated the system to, in essence, prescribe drugs to Brian Wilson. Um, And he should have spent time in prison for doing that, in my opinion. He manipulated Brian Wilson into making him the primary beneficiary of his will. I don't understand this. You know, it's like one of the go-to thing things of these cult-like psychiatrists and therapists is to make their patients, um, you know, change their wills. He lived in one of Brian's houses rent-free. 
similar to Dr. Hirschkoff. He changed Brian Wilson. Uh, he changed Brian Wilson almost a million dollars per year. Or he charged. Sorry, I have a in my notes. I have a I have a typo. Uh, he charged Brian Wilson almost a million dollars per year for his treatment. It's something like seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> you know, uh, well, how many? How much per hour would that be? Um, he controlled almost every aspect of Brian Wilson's life, when he would eat, uh, what he could eat, who he could talk to, what he could say to those people. Brian Wilson was terrified of him. Uh, he, basi- he basically became an abusive father to Brian Wilson. And Brian Wilson, given his issues, and given that, given that he's basically disabled because he has schizoaffective disorder, Brian Wilson just let him do it. And Eugene Landy managed to separate Brian Wilson from all of his support system and would make sure that he never had anyone that could help him. So in 1989, there was a, you know, a complaint given to the Department of Health of California, and his license was revoked. Landy got, uh, later got a license to practice in New Mexico and Hawaii, and he continued to practice until his death. So just think about that for a second. So Eugene Landy, one of the most famous manipulative, manipulative uh, abusive therapists, uh, does all these horrible things to one of the most famous people on the planet in the 20th century, and the allegations come out. Lots of people come forward. The Department of Health says, yep, we believe you. You don't have a license to practice, Eugene Landy. You're done. Well, then Landy just goes to just goes across the state line, gets another license, practices. Uh, to me, that seems like a broken system. Does it, doesn't it sound broken to you? It'd be like someone murders someone. You catch them. You have, a, you have on videotape. You convict them. And then they go, oh, my bad. And then they just cross a state line and then they murder someone else. Like you just, you just let them go. Like they can just do these horrible things to other people. Now, who knows? Maybe Eugene Landy did wonderful work after that. But again, there's a lot of therapists out there. We don't need people like this. And it just doesn't seem like justice. It doesn't seem right. If I was Brian Wilson and I knew Eugene Landy was just across the border, you know, a couple states over in New Mexico practicing, and, you know, living the high life, you know, my, my past patient was Brian Wilson. I really helped him. If I knew that, that would, that would break my heart. To think that the government didn't have an appropriate response to people like this, it's just awful. All right, so let's get into the ethical codes. So this is just my take, and it's based on the stuff from the Internet, the allegations. So I can't obviously know what really happened. All the information I have is from this podcast from what's on the internet, which everything on the internet is based on what's on the podcast. So I really just don't have any idea. And um, if I were involved in the hearing, I'm guessing I would hear a lot more nuance, a lot more details. Now, I might, if I was a part of the hearing, I might consider the allegations to be even more uh, worse. And Dr. Hershkoff could look even worse because other patients might be coming forward. I don't know. But, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe I would see it differently in a way that would make Dr. Hershkoff look not so bad. So this is all just based on internet stuff. You always need, need to take that into consideration from any sort of internet person commenting on internet stuff. So these are the American Psychiatric Association, which he, you know, needs to adhere to, the, the Principles of Medical Ethics, 2013 edition. 
So I pulled out the relevant um, uh, ethical, their, their, their relevant principles. They don't, I guess they don't call them ethics. They call them principles. I'm not really quite sure. So I'm an expert in uh, mental health, marriage and family therapy, counseling, psychology, uh, ethical codes. I'm not a huge, uh, obviously, expert in medical ethics because I'm, I'm not in the medical field. But I think I'm understanding their documents right. So section one, it says, a physician shall be dedicated to providing competent medical care with compassion and respect for human dignity and rights. A psychiatrist shall not gratify his or her own needs by exploiting the patient. Now, barring the fact that they're using binary uh, gender issues here, uh, let's look beyond that. A psychiatrist shall, shall not gratify his or her own needs by exploiting the patient. It is it looks pretty clear from the allegations in this podcast that Dr. Hirschkoff was absolutely gratifying his own needs by exploiting his patients. Dr. Hirschkoff wanted a fancy house. He manipulated, he exploited his patient to buy a fancy house so he could move into it. Dr. Hirschkoff wanted to have fancy parties. He exploited his patient so he could have fancy parties at his patient's house. Dr. Hirschkoff wanted to act like a, a a rich guy who owned a fancy house. So he exploited his patient to make it seem like he owned the house instead of his patient, you know, owning the house. Dr. Hirschkoff seemingly wanted a lot of money. So he exploited his patient so that he could get a bunch of his patient's money. Dr. Hirschkoff wanted someone to type up his 12 book manuscripts. And so he exploited his patient to get him to do that. So I think that's that's pretty clear. Section two of APA principles of medical ethics. A, a physician shall uphold the standards of professionalism, be honest in all professional interactions, and strive to report physicians deficient in character or competence or engaging in fraud or deception to appropriate entities. The psychiatrist should diligently guard against exploiting information furnished by the patient and should not use the unique position of power afforded him or her by the psychotherapeutic situation to influence the patient in any way not directly relevant to the treatment goals. So that's a long way of saying that psychiatrists should not use the patient's issues against them the psych, you know, the psychiatrist. If the psychiatrist learns, for example, that their patient is very manipulatable and has a hard time asserting themselves and is and is easily manipulatable, that the psychiatrist should not use that material against their patient for their own needs. Right? Pretty obvious. Psychiatric services, like all medical services, are dispensed in the context of a contractual arrangement between the patient and the physician. The provisions of the contractual arrangement, which are binding on the physician as well as on the patient, should should be explicitly established. So the reason why I'm including this one in my discussion here is that whenever we engage in our professional relationship with our clients and patients, the patient needs to know what's happening and the patient needs to consent to that. And so if, for example, uh, so let's say I... Uh, so I'll give a I'll give an example. So I have a supervisee, Christy, and she's going to be on the podcast soon, so sh she doesn't mind. Uh, she's already said it's okay for me to talk about her. Um, she uh, listened to the schema therapy episodes that I did. There's a lot of um, 
buzz, not buzz. <laughs> that sounds like uh, important. Uh, there's a lot of response that I'm getting to. So I, I did these patron only episodes that are available only to patrons on schema therapy that I have. And I'm, as I'm getting more into the theory, I'm finding it to be extremely helpful and useful um, way to very quickly understand one's issues and how to deal with them. Um, and so I put out the call. I said, hey, anyone out there who wants to come on the podcast and talk about their schemas so that people in podcast land can learn about different kinds of schemas, different kind of personalities, and maybe relate to you and learn from you know, your issues and you know, learn from the conversation that you have with me. Um, if you want to come on the podcast, we can do that. And so my, my supervisee, Christy Forrester, she uh, emailed me today and she's like, yeah, I'd like to come on the podcast. And so I said, okay, um, so this is a dual relationship because you're a supervisee of mine. She's a clinician who's under supervision. I'm supervising her private practice. Uh, so this would be a dual relationship. I told her that. I said, so not only would you be my supervisee, but you would also now be on my podcast. That's that's a dual relationship. And, and I said, um, so you just have to understand the risks involved in that. And I laid them all out in written form. And I said, um, yeah, and understand that uh, you don't have to do this. You know, know that just because you're my supervisee doesn't mean you have to volunteer for things that I ask for you to do. Uh, you know, I have other people that will volunteer. You don't, you know, you don't have to do, you don't have to put yourself at risk. And the risks are, you know, things like uh, on the podcast, she might reveal things to me that she wouldn't want her supervisor to know. Um, she might uh, reveal things on the podcast. She doesn't want everyone to know and will worry about telling me to edit it out because I'm her supervisor and I have authority over her, that kind of thing. And so we laid all that out and she said, yep, I understand those risks and I, I, I'm not worried about them. And I, I trust you, Kirk, that you'll, you know, um, work with me if I have a problem and that sort of thing. And so, so we basically, we don't have a contract officially, but we had a written and, you know, communication back and forth of what we're getting into here. And so, you know, it says, just reading this, this principle here, psychiatric services, like all medical services, are dispensed in the context, in the context of a contractual arrangement between patient and the physician. The provision of the contractual arrangement, which are binding on the physician as well as on the patient, should be explicitly established. So there needs to be a, a binding agreement established and followed. And with Dr. Hershkoff and with Eugene Landy, there was not a contractual arrangement made as far as I can tell from what the allegations are. At no point from what I heard in the podcast did Dr. Hirschkoff, go to Marty Markowitz and say, okay, you are about to enter into several other dual relationships with me. You'll, you know, you, you're going to be my patient, but you're also going to be my landlord. You're also going to be my party planner. You're also going to be my gardener. You're also going to be my pro promotional person. You're also going to be my business partner. You're also going to be, you know, all these other roles. And here are the risks and do, is it, are you cool with that? Do you understand what you're getting into? My cat has more to say about that. And from what I can tell, that was never established. Okay, section four. A physician shall respect the rights of patients, colleagues, and other health professionals and shall safeguard uh, patient confidences and privacy within the constraints of the law. 
Confidentiality is essential to psychiatric treatment. A psychiatrist may release confidential information only with authorization, authorization, blah, blah, blah. So this is the confidence. It's a, you know, common to all mental health people. Confidentiality is very important. And it seems that Dr. Hirsch, Dr. Hirschkoff absolutely broke uh, confidentiality often for not for clinical reasons, not for, you know, treatment reasons, for his own manipulative, manipulative reasons. Section eight, the last section I'll, I'll get into here. A physician shall, while caring for a patient, regard responsibility to the patient as paramount. When the, when the psychiatrist's outside relationships conflict with the clinical needs of the patient, the psychiatrist must always consider the impact of such relationships and strive to resolve conflicts in a manner that the psychiatrist believes is likely to be beneficial to the patient. So uh, now this one gets a little wonky, but, you know, roll with me on this one. So the psychiatrist involved, you know, Mart, uh, Dr. Hershkoff involved a lot of his outside relationships in his relationships with his patients. And along the way, whenever you do this, you have to think, well, what impact is this going to have on the treatment? What impact is this going to have on my client? And it doesn't seem like Dr. Hershkoff ever considered that. When significant relationships exist that may conflict with a patient's clinical needs, it is especially important to inform the patient or decision maker about these relationships and potential conflicts, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so it, it, it's, there's just more language around that, and it's pretty clear that he didn't. So, so I suspect that sections 1, 2, 4, and 8 are going to be brought up in this hearing on September 24th. Um, there might be other allegations that involve other sections, but that's, you know, those are a lot of sections. I think there's only eight sections total. (laughs) So he has, you know, he has major issues in four out of eight of the sections. I don't, maybe there's 12 sections. I don't remember, but not, not a lot. So yeah, this just makes me sick to think. uh, It'd be one thing if this guy got away with it for a year, two years. It's another thing when Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Dr. Hershkoff, these people get away with this shit for decades, decades. And it's, it's heartbreaking to think that bad actors can do this sort of stuff out in the open. They weren't lurking in the shadows. They didn't have a ninja mask on. They didn't have to mask their identity. They didn't wear, you know, they didn't have their, their victims weren't wearing blindfolds. They just did it right out in the open. And why is that? Because they knew we would let them get away with it. They knew our society and our system was set up to protect them and not the victims. They knew they could weasel their way out of it. And I know a lot of uh, mental health, not a lot, but I know mental health cases like this where it smells like manipulation. Like one of the things that, mental health professionals can rely on is that society considers patients to be crazy, right? It's like, well, you know, Marty Markowitz, he was in therapy. He must be crazy. And if he's crazy, then God knows what he's going to think and say and believe. And so the psychiatrist, when they, when these allegations come forward, they'll just be like, ah, you know, he had issues. He has transference issues. That's where this is coming from. He, he's a, you know, a jilted client who uh, has a lot of abuse in his past and it's, it's, he's acting out. Don't worry about it. 
And there are some times where it seems like that is not a legit defense, and yet it flies anyway. Patients don't have as much power as clinicians do. Women don't have as much power as men do. And thus, we have our uh, society that allows for monsters to run rampant and victimize hundreds and thousands of people. Do you think that Dr. Hershkoff is the only one that's doing this sort of thing out there? No. As a podcaster, I and because I talk about this often, I get a lot of emails from people talking about their therapists doing horrific things. Now, I'm not there, but if ten, even 10% of them are accurate, man, do we have a problem. And I find that a lot of therapists don't like to talk about this. And this sort of boggles me. It's sort of like when priests back in the day, and maybe still today, don't like to talk about the fact that some of their colleagues are sexually abusing the, the, the kids in their church. Shouldn't priests be the first fucking people to, talk out, to, to speak up when they find out about one of their colleagues having sex with children in their church? Shouldn't priests be the first people to speak up? Shouldn't I, as a therapist, be the first person to speak out when I find that someone is doing something unethical? Why would I want to hide that? That just makes me look bad. And when it finally comes out, it makes us really look bad. Now, I want to be clear. These kinds of people are rare, as I said earlier. The vast majority of us are following the letter of the ethical codes. And like I said, uh, you know, I have supervisees and colleagues who are obsessing. Oh my God, I, you know, I, I accepted this card. I didn't open it up. And, you know, my patient left and it was our final session. I opened up the card later and there was a $5 uh, Starbucks card in there. And I don't know what to do. Do I send it back to him? Yeah, you could send it back to him, but you know, it, it's probably okay. It's just five bucks. <laughs> like buy yourself a latte. It's probably more, it's probably not enough money to buy a latte these days at Starbucks. Uh, you know, most of us are are really concerned about these kinds of things, and for good reason. And yet, these rare individuals are out there, you know, having sexual cuddling with their clients, uh, getting into their clients' uh, bank accounts, controlling their, isolating their clients from other people so that they can manip- manipulate them. We therapists should be the first people to stand up and say, no, that cannot happen. And we need to raise awareness about this. We therapists need to raise awareness of the fact that these things are happening and that patients do not have power. And even when Marty Markowitz is a white male who had millions of dollars and lawyers and what happened? Nothing. So what do you think a marginalized, abused, you know, 25 year old poor person is going to what kind of power do you think they have? And this is something that I talk about a lot, actually, with my supervisees who work in agencies, is that, uh, you know, local agencies, mental health agencies, they serve people on, on, on medical coupons. And these are poor people, immigrants, they're struggling, you know, single parent homes, uh, you know, working a lot or, you know, mental health issues, addiction issues, you know, just a lot of issues. And what ends up happening is the rights of the patients get slowly trounced upon by the mental health agencies. 
um, not because the mental health agencies are bad people, but because they they don't remember their ethical codes and there's no one pushing back on them. You know, my cat still wants to, every 15 minutes, my cat just starts to pipe up. Um, the patients are poor. They might be undocumented immigrants. Uh, many, most of them aren't. Uh, but let's just say you have, you know, uh, an American citizen, but struggling with low income and goes to a mental health agency and has their rights uh, trounced upon, their confidentiality rights trounced upon. They're uh, routinely, you know, like one of the things that I, it just drives me nuts is there will be, um, you know, I'll have an intern at my university will be working at a mental health agency that has the interns go to schools. And so the intern, this intern therapist works at this uh, high school, for example, and um, finds a broom closet to see their clients in. And then the teachers find out, I think my cat just wants to be let out. I'm going to let her out. Right, I'm back. So let's say that this intern is working at a high school and the teachers know that some of their students are seeing this intern in the broom closet. And the intern walks out of the broom closet and a teacher walks up and says, okay, so, I, you know, Johnny, uh, what's going on with Johnny? Because, you know, Johnny's acting up in class and, you know, Johnny's parents are a problem. You know, what's going on? And the intern feels pressured to break confidentiality and talk about their client with this teacher, even though they don't have a release of information to do so. This drives me nuts. And the, the, a lot of these mental health agencies and the supervisors, they don't even blink an eye at that. They're like, well, you know, you're working at the school, work with the teachers. And it's like, no, no. We have a ethical responsibility that's clear that clients have confidentiality. You cannot talk with your client's teacher or their parents or their friends or the President of the United States without a release of information unless you have cause to do so, which are very rare instances as mandated by law or when there's, you know, someone that's going to be harmed or something. But, you know, certainly not in casual conversation with the teacher. And guess what? The kid probably doesn't even know they have rights. And even if they did, where are they going to go? Who are they going to turn to? And even if they did know the Department of Health, is the Department of Health going to listen to them? I don't know. Uh, according to this one case with, with uh, Barty Markowitz, no. Depart the Department of Health, even if you're at the top of the food chain when it comes to power, they still might not do anything. How is that okay? That is not okay. And us as therapists need to do something about that. We need to actually you know, pressure our states, pressure patients to step forward for themselves and advocate for all, everyone's rights. To, we, we as therapists need to use our power for good and actually try to bolster the complaint power system so that these bad apples can be um, outed, you know, years before decades go by uh, and they've abused all these people. In the same way that we need to help young women know that they can come forward and that they won't be shamed, that they will be believed, and that the justice system will do something. You know, whenever these things happen, we tend to be like, oh, okay, we caught the bad guy, uh, you know, back back to work, everything's fine. Um, no. Everything's everything's not fine. When we see stuff like this, we'd be like, whoa, how did this guy get away with it? for so long? And how many other people are getting away with it right now? 
if this guy got away with it for so long and someone complained and the Department of Health did nothing and it takes a number one podcast uh, in the world to actually get a Department of Health to do something about it, then I would say we have a problem on our hands. If Bill Cosby can get away with abusing all this, if Harvey Weinstein can get away with it, we have a problem on our hands. And catching these individuals is part of the solution, but it's 1% out of 100% of what needs to get done. We've got to change our society. We've got to change our systems. We've got to change our justice system. We've got to change our culture. We have to destigmatize therapy. We have to uh, give more money to Department of Health, I guess. We have to have watchdogs in the Department of Health. We have to have politicians paying attention to the Department of Health. We have to have therapist organizations paying attention to the Department of Health. We have to um, have uh, education to the public from therapists saying, these are our ethical codes, and if one of us breaks these rules, please, by all means, tell someone and we'll help you walk you through the complaint process because you deserve, you have rights. And we as therapists want to be the first person to, you know, the, the first people to uh, come forward and help you with this because we don't want people like like that doing stuff like that either. And I'm not talking about the, the Hirschkoffs of the world. I'm talking about even minor things, you know. There are therapists that do minor things that they, they you know, maybe they don't need their, thera- their license to be taken away, but they might need a little bit of education. Like, hey, uh, don't sexually cuddle your clients. How about that? <laughs> um, anyway, so in the last few things here is uh, people are asking online, they're like, well, you know, isn't Marty Markowitz to blame? You know, he consented to all this stuff. He consented to Dr. Hershkoff being put in his will. He consented to Dr. Hershkoff taking over his business. He consented to Dr. Hershkoff moving into his house. Isn't, you know, he's, he's to blame. You know, uh, um, what I'll say to that is the power that a therapist has over a client can be and is for some relationships, powerful. Um, you know, it's the same thing as as saying like a boss doesn't really have any power over their employees, you know, sexual harassment or something. And it's like, that just ignores the reality of things. <laughs> so is Marty to blame? No, I, I don't blame Marty for this at all. Uh, Marty came into the relationship asking for help from about assertiveness, knew that he had problems with boundaries, knew that he had problems with being manipulated by other people. And he, the therapist utilizes that, groomed him over time. Again, he didn't spring all these manipulations on Marty Markowitz day one. He, he groomed him over years. And if you listen to the podcast, you get a picture of that. Where, and that's how these people do this kind of thing. You know, that's how they do it, is they just slowly work their way into people's lives. Um, the other thing that's interesting is there could be a massive civil suit after all this, is set, after the hearing, you know. I'm guessing that Marty Markowitz and the other patients are thinking, you know, let's sue this guy. Let's sue him so that he doesn't, you know, he a strong message is sent. And I would be absolutely supportive of that. Because, again, the worst that the... Uh, Department of Health can do is take away his license and give him a minor fine that he could probably easily pay. So a civil suit would be appropriate. 
So in conclusion, I'll say that I can't imagine anyone ever doing something like this. I would never invite a client to a party and have never. I would never introduce a client to someone I knew. I've never done that. I've never touched a client at a party when they were in a bikini. That would never occur to me. I've never suggested that a client cut themselves off from other people in their family. I've never suggest I've never suggested a client cut themselves off from their support system or even if they didn't like them anymore. I mean, just to give you an idea. I had a patient once who was sexually abused by her father and was still socializing with him often. And although to me, I thought, wow, you know, that doesn't sound like it's very good for her. I never thought to myself, well, I'm going to tell her she needs to cut her father off from, from her life because I'm not that stupid. I'm a therapist. I know better. I'm never going to tell someone to do something. Now, I might suggest, like, I might ask questions, like, how do you feel about being in a relationship with them? Do you want to be in a relationship with them? Do you feel controlled? Do you, do you feel like your relationship with him is benefiting you at all? You, you know you have the right to say, no, I don't want to see you anymore. Like, you know, I'll throw that stuff out there. But I would never say, like, you're, you know, the stuff that Marty Markowitz alleges that Hirschkopf said were things like, you can't control your life. You're passive aggressive. You don't understand how things work. You can't handle the truth. Um, let me tell you what to do. I would, <laughs> I would never do that. Um, you know, even when people ask me for my opinion, I, I don't even answer. You know, they'll be like, "So, do you think I should cut off my parents? You know, my parents are awful people. Do you think I should cut them off?" I, I, I'm always like, "I don't know. What do you? I, that's a very good question. Let's explore it." I would never know the answer to that question. That's too complex. I've never gone into business with a client. Um, I've never gone into business with a client that I had 20 years. If a, if a client from, I've been a therapist for 20 plus years. If a, if a client came for me, you know, if a 20, if I terminated with a client 20 years ago and they came to me and they had a sweet business deal, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You're once a client, always a client. I've never asked a client to put me um, in their will. I've never asked a client to buy a house for me. <laughs> I've never moved in to a client's house. I've never asked a client to act like they didn't own their house and to act like I own the house. I've never asked a client to type up a manuscript of my book. It's never occurred to me to do these things. You know, I've had super rich, super famous clients before. I've, I've had clients like that. You know, people with power, with, with millions upon millions of dollars, you know, um, that could easily afford my, my fee. And it never occurred to me that I would use them to help my life or something and what it leads me to believe is that Dr. Hershkoff must have a giant hole in his soul that he's trying to fill. Because when I think about doing something like that, you know, when I think about like taking one of my super rich clients or my super famous clients and like um, getting them to uh, make me a, a part of their will or make me into a celebrity or make me... Uh, look like I have a fancy house. The only reason why I could imagine doing that is if I was massively insecure and massively suffering deep down. 
and I was just like, I'm a flawed person or I'm not good enough. And the only way I'm going to be good enough is if I have a fancy house and if people think I'm famous and that I'm friends with Gwyneth Paltrow. So Dr. Hirschkoff must be suffering deeply. And I feel bad for him, honestly. I don't feel bad for him enough to not take away his license and not hope that he gets sued successfully, (laughs) if the allegations are correct. But I do feel bad for him. And that does that for that episode. Let me know what you think. Go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com. Fill out the Contact Us page. That's usually how I like people to contact me. Also, if you like this episode and you want to hear others, uh, become a patron of the podcast. That's where all of our best episodes are. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and assert yourself to the authorities and uh, help other people come forward and have the power that they deserve because we all deserve it. We really, really do. (laughs) 